Apostles' Creed. Let's say it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the spirits in hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Apostles' Creed, as I've said before, is not Scripture, but it's an attempt by early church fathers, um, probably the generation, um, it, would, it wasn't canonized, it wasn't um, landed on completely until probably the end of the second century, but it had been in development. It had been passed on verbally among those who were the next generation from the apostles. It's 114 words trying to identify the essentials of the Christian faith. 114 words. And so they were, they were working hard to try to identify what was truly important because they're um, there's so much more spiritual warfare than we realize. There's that one than we often recognize. And so, after Jesus died, resurrected, ascended to the Father, sent the Holy Spirit, the enemy didn't stop. So the enemy is constantly trying to steal, kill, and destroy. And and a part of the way he does that is to try to insert heresy instead of truth. And so they were trying to identify what was the most important um, essential beliefs if you're going to follow Christ. And so a part of that are, is the fra- are the phrases that we're going to look at today. He descended to the spirits in hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. Of course, we all believe, yeah, absolutely. The resur- without the resurrection, Good Friday is a loss. He ascended into heaven. That's obvious. The end of Matthew, first part of Acts, we see that's exactly what Jesus did. He, he uh, gave uh, the disciples marching orders, and then they watched him ascend back to the Father. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So the, the last few phrases are, yeah, of course, But that one phrase, he descended to the spirits in hell. Now, what struck one of the things that struck me this week is that they would identify that as one of the most important essentials of the Christian faith. Now, and I've never really considered that. Um, In fact, the scriptures we're going to look like look at today largely, I would read them and go. I know they're in the Bible and they mean something, but I don't get it until the last few years. If it's that important that Jesus descended to the spirits in hell, that the early church fathers, those who were trying to protect the faith, who had 
direct access to the apostles. They were the next generation, you know, so they were like the children of the faith, the sons and daughters who came to know Christ. If they thought it was that important, then we need to identify what this is really all about. So let's talk about it. If you want to open in your sermon notes to talk about Jesus' deeper victory than what we ordinarily see. That the picture is bigger and more beyond us than we realize. Our, our sin nature causes us to be focused on this life this, that is upside down, the earthly realm, um, in ways that we don't even realize. And I often say we're way more upside down than we recognize. We're, we're way, we, we still got a lot of clicks to go in order to get right side up. And it's especially hard when we don't have a point of reference to things in the heavenly realm to, to be able to go, yeah, that's kind of like this. So when Jesus came, it was truly the battle of all time. So let, let's, let's just do a little review. Last week, um, Victoria, Randy, and Matthew talked about the previous phrase about Jesus' life. So when Jesus arrives, he arrives in the form of a human being, born of a, of a virgin, um, and he, it's, it's a spiritual invasion. It's D-Day. It's landing forces so that when he arrives, the devil and all of his demonic forces understands this is the assault. And so they immediately went into, let's destroy this Savior. We've got to destroy him because, other, because we, we are basically in control until God makes some way of reconciling mankind back to the Father. So they have basically been in control for a couple of centuries. And then Jesus arrives on the scene. By the time he's two, Satan tries to physically kill him. If you remember, there was an order after the wise men came along and Herod said, I got to get rid of this one who they, you know, the, this newborn king. And he tries to kill him. And there's a massacre of, of children, boys two and under in the area of Bethlehem. And then Jesus continues to grow. And, and several times during his ministry, the enemy tries to kill him. Now, in the form of Pharisees and religious leaders and people who try to push him off a cliff, who try to kill him, try to arrest him. And God doesn't allow it until the time was right. And finally, Satan thinks he's won because now he's killing the Son of God. He's won. He thought he won because he didn't understand what Jesus was doing. So when Jesus breathes his last and said, it is finished, he, Satan, thinks he's won. And, that's, and, that, and that leads us now to this statement from the Apostles' Creed that is based in Scripture. So, number one, the truth is about Jesus' victory is more than we know. Jesus' victory is more than we know. So our culture and Christianity is often more influenced by Dante's Inferno and some of these other writings about who Satan is and what he does and, and, all, and what hell's going to be like than the Bible. Um, and we, we struggle because if our point of reference is the earthly realm, 
we, um, we, we struggle to try to figure out what in the world the Bible is really saying when it talks about Jesus going into hell. We, because we think, so here, here's part of our problem. Um, if we don't think it's possible, then we tend to dismiss it. Right? Yep. So, um, as we, so our tendency then is to look at the scriptures that we're going to look at now and say, and just dismiss it. That doesn't make any sense. That, I'm, I'm just going to set that aside. Because our point of reference is earthly realm. Instead of the big picture. Mm-hmm. We tend to think it's all about us. When in reality, when Jesus arrives in the form of a baby, it wasn't just about mankind. It was about the unseen angels and the unseen demons and all of creation. So it was, there was much more at stake than just mankind. And that's what these scriptures refer to. Spiritual war for us is bigger and broader and more pervasive than we recognize. And so there's a tendency for us to dismiss things because we don't understand. We don't grasp it. It seems too far-fetched. But then we believe in Star Wars. Right? It's, it's interesting because um, being a little bit of a history person, if you read um, about or study about um, what was going on in our country in the 1930s, what you find is, is that our, our country was reeling from the aftermath of World War I. Europe even more, but our country was reeling from that. We had lost thousands of young men fighting a war on another continent that, that wasn't e- even our fight. And so when Hitler and Mussolini began to rise to power, there was this vast movement in the United States to be pacifists. We don't want to send our boys to Europe again. We don't want to lose those thousands of people again. And, and so there was this, this huge move until December 7th, 1941, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. And now everybody moves from being a pacifist to being a patriot. And the lines... Uh, to, to sign up for the armed services went around the block. People trying to get in. My hope is that after this message, that's where we'll be. From, I don't get this, and I don't understand it, to I'm on Jesus' side even more passionately than I've ever been before. So that's our goal today. So we're going to look at some scriptures. And as I said before, these are scriptures that I used to read and just shake my head and go, I don't get it, until a few years ago, especially through Michael Heiser, we discovered the broader picture of what these mean. So Genesis chapter 6, beginning of the first one. Anybody need a Bible? Okay, everybody got it? Here we go. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, turn there. This is early in creation. First rebellion was in Genesis chapter 3. What happened there? Let's see, this is when I, I ask a question and I go like this. 
means a answer. The fall. Adam and Eve rebelled. That's what faith must be song refers to that. That was the first rebellion. This is the second rebellion. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Sons of God is a phrase for the unseen. The, the um, theological term is Elohim. The supernatural beings. The, we would call them angels. Um, and so the sons of God were um, angels. They saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. That means supernatural Elohim, supernatural unseen beings, come to earth, began to mate with women, and they desecrate the hum human nature. Second rebellion. Now, we, have st we, st we often struggle with that because how can that be? How... It doesn't seem possible. How can it? But Jesus came in the form of a man, right? Um, angels have shown up. They have supernatural powers that we don't understand. So that's what we have. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So these supernatural beings come down, take physical form to women, they mate, and they have children, and now there's tainted blood. Because it's half human, half supernatural, and they were the giants. And so that's where you get Goliath and you know some of these giants just because it says mighty men of old doesn't mean they were it was a positive mighty it just means they were powerful they were they were they were and and that by the way was a, a lot of the assignment to Joshua to kill all of these people in Canaan because they had tainted blood they were not human so that's that's what we have the nephilim were the were the um, mixed blood um, uh, offspring, good, offspring. Fast forward, not fast forward, but then now go to, in your New Testament, Jude. It's a book of the Bible with only one chapter. So if you ever wake up one day and go, I'm going to read a whole chapter, I'm going to read a whole book of the Bible. <laughs> If you, if you really want to understand it, you, you might want to use something else, though. So Jude, because there's only one chapter, doesn't have a chapter. It just has verses. New Testament, after Jesus, Holy Spirit's come. Jude was one of the leaders of the early church. Now I want to remind you, although you fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. He's referring back to Genesis 6. Genesis, so he's saying those angels who did not stay within their own authority, they were being disobedient. They sinned. They turned their back on God. It was a rebellion. 
But they left their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So here's what we have. We've got these Elohim, these unseen beings come down, mate with women, have children. The children are mixed blood, Nephilim. You know what happens next in the book of Genesis after six? The flood. He's destroying them. And so after the flood, God places those, those um, rebellious Elohim into prisons of darkness, these spiritual prisons. At some point, they're going to be let out and they'll be judged. Now, this is where I want to say, God, don't you have a volume two? Because you give us so little information. In Genesis 6, it's only four verses. That's all you give us. And what, here's what we know. Whatever God gives us, that's what he wants us to have. Amen. We don't need to know everything else, but we need to know this. So we don't know all the details, but we know that these demonic Elohim were placed in prison after the flood. Then we go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Beginning with verse 18. And as I was digging into this, I, you know, one of the questions that kept coming to mind, why do we need to know this? And in a moment, you're going to see why. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There's a lot of, of uh, scriptural basis for the Apostles' Creed just in this passage. In which he went, here we go, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, <clears throat> in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not the baptism itself, but the repentance that baptism represents. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven as at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Go back to verse uh, 19, which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. When did he do that? Jesus died on the cross. On the third day, he was resurrected. It was, what was Jesus doing in, in between times? Some, sometimes I've wondered that. People have asked that. Here's what he was doing. He was going to the demonic, disobedient, spiritual forces that had been put in some kind of spiritual prison that we would call hell. And he proclaimed, he announced to them. He was taught. Now, I used to read that and think, because my, my, uh, for, for some reason my first perspective was if he's proclaiming, he is, he is proclaiming salvation. He is preaching, because when you preach, you, you're inviting people to come to salvation. And so, so that I always thought about, and then, I, then as I studied it deeper, I realized, no, he wasn't, he wasn't giving an invitation to salvation. 
He was going there to proclaim that they are doomed. Now remember, when Jesus arrives, Satan and all his demonic forces try hard to keep him from winning the battle. So they try to kill him at two, they try to kill him in his ministry, they try, and they think they've killed him on the cross, and they don't realize that they played right into God's hand. And so now, as he, his spirit leaves, he goes to hell and proclaims, you have lost. You are doomed. Because I don't, it doesn't say, but I don't think they knew that they would be doomed. I think they thought maybe they were put into that prison for a period of time and sometime they'd be let out. I don't think they knew. It was as it was if Jesus was going with this incredible proclamation, this incredible victory saying, I didn't just squeak by, I have destroyed everything that you have ever desired. You are doomed. And so that's why he went to prison. He wasn't inviting them to be saved. He was letting them know he had won. And what does that represent? It represents who Jesus is. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and he is the Savior. Our memory verse. He is the Savior. He is above all things. He is before all things. All things are created for him. He has won. He didn't just win a little. He defeated them completely and totally. And now all that the enemies of God can do is try to discourage. He has no... So here we get into the implications. So number two is worldview and application. So understanding that Jesus has defeated completely, that he went there and was kind of like, na 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 you got nothing. You got nothing. You got no hope. You got no power. There's nothing. You got nothing. You have got nothing. But Satan, so the only thing he can do is to try to get us to give up. That's the only power he has. If you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, when you don't feel like it, and just following him, obeying him, that's all it takes. That's all he requires. That's all that matters. The only way he wins is if you give up. Because he who endures to the end will be saved. So he tries to deceive. He tries to trick he tries to tempt. He tries to do anything he can to get you unfocused on Jesus, away from being solely and completely his. That's what he does. All we have to do is just keep going. Because he's one. Satan has no power. Zero. Except what we allow him. That's the implication of this. He didn't just die on the cross and just kind of... Whew, on Easter Sunday, wow, I made it through. He's out there throwing it in the faces of the enemy. Which I can't imagine just made them want to, uh, made the demonic forces want to even push harder. Because they know they have lost. So you go to the book of Revelation, it's a big battle. I don't, I don't, I don't understand a whole lot of Revelation. I'll just I've studied it, read it, tried to figure it out. There's so many different ideas about it. Here's what I do know. It's a big battle. And Jesus wins big. Because Satan doesn't survive it. Romans chapter 8. 
Then we go. We'll begin with verse 31. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? All the things that he's been talking about before, about who God is and what he's done, and how he has provided for salvation and freedom. If God is for us, who can be against us? Worldview and implications. If God is for us, if the God who was Jesus, who died on the cross, and then went to the um, spiritual, the only spiritual forces that had anywhere close to power that he, he has, and he went and told them, you lost, you're doomed. If that God is for us, who can be against us? There's nobody left, right? Sometimes we get discouraged because we think Satan is winning. Satan is, he doesn't win. Now, it looks like he gets people to give up. He gets people to give into temptation out there in the world. You know, there's all kinds of stuff hitting the fan in the world. That's absolutely true because God gives us free will to do what we want. But ultimately, he wins, and he wins big. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If since God gave the very best that he had, why would he hold back anything now? His Holy Spirit, his resources, all, all that he wants, because he wants us to keep going. He wants us to win alongside of him. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the only one who can condemn. Satan can't. Only Jesus can but he died for us. And more than that, he, he was raised. And who is now at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So this brings us to uh, some more of, the, of our, our, the, the phrase in the Apostles' Creed. He went into hell, and he, and he preached to those spirits in prison, and then he is seated at the right hand of the God. Praying for us. Think about that for just a moment. He's interceding for us. He not only died and was resurrected and sent his spirit, but he now works on our behalf. And he says, Look at that. Herb's struggling down there. He's struggling. Dad, Dad. Let's send him some resources. Mm-hmm. And they go, yeah. We'll give him all that he needs in order to handle all that he faces. Amen. Because that's God's purpose. Amen. We have the Son of God interceding for us. Mm-hmm. And our, earlier in the chapter, or later in the chapter, it says the Holy Spirit is also interceding for us with groans too deep for words. I think one of the reasons why those early church fathers included this in the Apostles' Creed is because that's the resource for us to live for Christ. Mm-hmm. Not us, but Christ in us. Yeah. The hope of glory. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress 
or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That is the situation for Paul, he says. But is that going to separate us? Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I just wonder if that, though, those weren't the moments for the early Christians when they would go back to this part of the Apostles' Creed, go back to these scriptures in Jude and um, in Peter's writings, and go, oh yeah, remember, he went to those demonic forces in prison and proclaimed doom to them. He was more than a conqueror. He was a super conqueror. There was, they couldn't touch him. He announced that. And if that's true, it's true for us. Amen. More than conquerors. If, if we serve a, a, a God who has control and power over all of those demonic Elohim, we have nothing to fear and nothing to lose. Amen. Right? Right? Yeah. Right? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, and that, I don't think that refers to earthly rulers. I think it refers to the spiritual rulers. So, neither angels, the good guys, the rulers, the bad guys, in this unseen, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He won. He went to hell. And he announced to the, the only ones who could ever try to get us that they lost. And they could have no more power over those who followed him. So what are the implications? First of all, how we see. How we view life. This impacts our worldview. It's because it's so hard to embrace that unseen reality. Um, I was talking to, to Dave this week, and uh, we were talking about, it just looks like there's so much spiritual warfare happening around, you know, different people's lives, all this different stuff. And, and he, said, he said, bro, you told us. He said, I thought it was just a shot for effect. I thought, <laughs> I thought you were just saying that because it's, you know, pay attention. He said, It's real. It's real. There's a lot of stuff going on. And so we need to embrace that spiritual warfare is all around it, is pervasive, and it's little things. So the moment you start making, so at the No Regrets Conference, when all of these men were making commitments to God, and I guarantee you the next week, many of those guys faced stuff that they'd never faced before. Or it came from a blindside of them. Or just a, why? Because Satan doesn't give up. So we need to recognize, we need to see this through the spiritual realm, that we aren't the, we, we aren't the focus of all of creation. So when God created earth and he created mankind, he was creating another family in addition to the spiritual family of angels that he already had. And that when he wins battles, when, when we see the fall of Adam and Eve, when we see all of this stuff happening in Genesis 6, and then we see what happens at the Tower of Babel, 
When we see all that stuff, it's because we're part of two different realms. It's the physical realm and it's the spiritual realm. Earthly realm and heavenly realm. And so we need to recognize that we are in the middle of all of, all of that. And then how do we live? Very quickly. Hope. Hope. How should this statement impact us? Hope. Jesus is truly in charge. He's truly in charge. He went to hell to gloat over the demonic Elohim. He is in charge. And he will be in charge if you allow him. He won't take charge if you don't. But there's hope. Since Jesus is, was doing that in the unseen, we can be confident that he is powerful in the unseen on our behalf. And he's got a plan for time and eternity. There, there's coming a day when Jesus will return and he will create all things new. There should be an awe of God. When we begin to see these things that didn't make sense before, and now we recognize, oh, this is, this is part of the unseen, and Jesus is working, it should create an awe that it is much, much more than this. Um, last week we were in San Diego visiting, or in Temecula, California. We went down to San Diego to the Science Center with my granddaughters. And we went to the IMAX theater. And they had, um, I can't remember what the space probe was, but it was after the Hubble. There's another one that they sent out there and they had all these pictures. And, and I sat there listening to all of these scientists talk about all that they had accomplished in sending this, putting this thing together, sending it out into space. And then the pictures that have come back, and some of them were talking about how they got tears in their eyes when they saw the beauty and the creation and, and all of that. And all I could keep thinking is, you have no idea. <laughs> I mean, if it's true that they're discovering all of these um, galaxies, it's God showing off. It's not you creating a probe that is taking pictures of stuff. And the arrogance of them talking about how they did this and how we can control creation. And uh, I'm going, you have no idea. But it created an awe that God is bigger than we can ever imagine. Not only just out there, but in our lives. It also should create trust. Um, Jesus going to hell is a big deal. I mean, he took care of the, all, all of those powerful beings. And so that should cause us to trust him. Because the Bible is clear, no temptation will take you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. In other words, there's a filter a God filter that limits any demonic being from doing anything except what God allows. You are not a victim of the demonic forces. As long as you keep your focus, as long as you're walking in obedience, God protects. Now he, and so when bad stuff happens, we know it's not because uh, Satan is in charge. It's because God's in charge. He's allowing it for a reason. 
And you go back to Genesis, I think it's chapter 50, where Joseph says to his brothers, you intended this for evil, God intended it for good. That was Good Friday. Satan thought he'd won. And then Jesus wins. And he goes to hell and gloats. Obedience. So trust. We can trust that God is in charge. Obedience. Obedience. We have, God has given us free will. He's given us personal authority. He's not going to take that back. And so when we obey, we're cooperating with him and we experience him. When we disobey, God's not, God will make it uncomfortable, <laughs> but he won't force our will. And so we need to be di- di- diligent about uh, being obedient. And then finally, perspective. Since God is so involved in, in, the, cre- in the, the story of mankind, from Genesis to Revelation, since he is so involved, then we can um, have the perspective that he is working all things for our good. Right? Not all things that feel good, but we can trust the scripture. We can trust the scripture. So our perspective is, it it shifts from, oh no, not another bad thing. Oh no, not another cold. Oh no, not another episode with my mom. Oh no, no. It, we back up and the perspective says, oh God, what are you up to now? What do I need to hear? What do I need to see? In fact, um, um, I hadn't planned on, so went to uh, California, got back on Tuesday. On Monday, I'd gotten a text from my sister that said hospice had stopped by with my mom who has Alzheimer's and some other physical issues, and said they think she might be transitioning, which is the word they use for dying. And so I, I was praying, I was saying, God, I hadn't planned on going to Springfield because I didn't, my sister was moving, I don't want to be any place close to anybody moving ever <laughs> again. I'm too old for that. But I was praying, and I got this strong nudge. You need to be there. You need to be there not just for your mom, but for your sister. So I went. And so it was, you know, nonstop helping her. You know, I didn't have a lot of moments to pull away and be with God. And I'm driving back, and I'm talking with God about... And and by the way, it turns out um, my mom had a cold, which she so graciously shared with me. Because that's the way moms are. (laughs) Um, And that's why she wasn't eating, and that's why she was asleep. So it wasn't the Alzheimer's as much as it was that. Um, But I'm on my way back, and I'm going, I'm going, God, you know, I didn't get a lot of time to spend on the message and um, these other things that I need to be doing. And I just sense God say, you know, you were worshiping me when you were spending time with your mom and your sister because you were being obedient. That's perspective. Right? That's God's perspective. But we don't get it unless we go to Him. Say, God, what are you seeing? Would you bow your heads? So out of all that we've talked about this morning, what is it that stuck out to you?
And what is God saying to you about that thing that stuck out? Does he want you to change perspective? Does he want you to change some actions, attitudes? How do you need to, what kind of, what do you need to do in response? What action do you need to take? What change do you need to make? Lord, we thank you that you give us understanding as we continue to walk with you, study your word. Um, And we know that we just have the tip of the iceberg, that someday in heaven we'll be able to see the massive picture that you had. And, And so we look forward to that. But until then, God, I pray that you would lead us to see what's important, to live for what's important, and to be your body, your, your salt and light in this world. I pray for each person and, and ask that you would take this message, you would apply it, and you would make us more like you. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.